Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line Podcasts, a podcast that takes a look at innovation, technology, policy, and its impact on national security and foreign affairs. I'm your host, Guy Snodgrass. Joining me as always is Mark Solomons. Hi, Guy. How's it going? You know, doing great. A lot of fast-moving news this week. Of course, we're continuing to see some of the stuff we've covered previously play out. The uh, firing of Captain Brett Crozier is still ongoing as the United States Navy is taking a, a very close look and scrutinizing the communications he had other members of that chain of command. I know you've asked in multiple podcasts, why in the world would this guy release a four-page memo without going through his chain of command first? And so far, the word that we're getting back is, of course, he did go through his chain of command. He was working it informally and then wanted to memorialize his concerns. But the Navy is sometime this week has said that they're going to release their findings and talk about uh, that situation. And since then, we've, we've seen, unfortunately, that one of the sailors on board that ship passed away. And as of this morning, they've announced that another, I believe it's either four or five sailors are now in intensive care, one of which is also on a ventilator. So we're continuing to watch as that uh, situation progresses. Yeah, it's a sad story all around, Guy. And uh, I don't know what the eventual outcome is going to be and how far this is going to spread. We now are hearing uh, various other ships have soldiers or sailors that are coming down with corona, and it's also impacting all the services. Uh, Army's got a, a problem with it as well right now. Yeah, I think the the other thing I've seen trending recently was a lot of members of the national security community. And in fact, it's topical because you look at our last episode of the podcast where we were talking with Pauline shanks Karin. We were also talking with Doyle Hodges about the relationship between civilian and military. So, of course, we call that civ-mil relationships, how that plays out. One thing that's been making the rounds and has gone viral is this video clip of Secretary Esper. So Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, and he's at the podium in the Pentagon briefing room with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley, and they're talking about various issues with the press, and uh, Esper's talking about the haircut policy, the fact that you, a lot of pictures and some video of, of Marines, of soldiers, of sailors lined up, it looked like around the block, just yeah, waiting to get Pendleton. a haircut. Yeah, Camp Pendleton, I mean, waiting to get this haircut. And, of course, no social distancing and, and people asking the question, well, during a time of a pandemic is maintaining grooming standards where you need to be. So that brings you to this conversation in the Pentagon briefing room with Secretary Esper up there. And, and he's making a point that, look, this is a pandemic. You don't need to get your hair cut. And the chairman of the Joint Chief interrupts him to cut him off and say that is not policy. That's not established policy, which caused a little bit of a fur within the national security community only because it had the, a pretty strong appearance of a subordinate four-star general now engaging his secretary of defense boss and basically countermanding what he's telling the media. And I'm curious, Mark, you know, your thoughts on that when right. you saw well, that clip. As we've seen with a, a lot of policies that are made, the the hardest part is implementing them. And this, uh, this haircut policy is uh, easy as it seems to imp, you know, implement it. It's not. It presents a huge challenge. And uh, that's what I think General Milley was trying to convey to everybody in the room there that, you know, you just can't tell everybody don't don't worry about your grooming standards because that has a trickle down effect to another a number of other standards that a soldier, sailor, airman, Marines have to abide by. 
Any concerns in your, you know, I, was, I guess thinking about the bigger implication when you talk about civilian military relationships, that's been kind of a bedrock. We discussed this on the last podcast, the fact that there's that civilian control of the military. And typically when you're especially out in public view and more importantly, when you're talking to members of the media where everything you say is amplified, any concerns in your mind that you see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs kind of jumping over and, and shouting or talking over the Secretary of Defense to to basically counteract what he's telling everybody? Well, you, you know, if you watch the video, you could tell he was uh, kind of caught off guard there and wanted to just, you know, shut down the uh, the policy before it even got started, which uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, it, uh, the, the video is out there, and I'm sure both of them had to have a cup of coffee and discuss how to move forward from, uh, from that uh, – discussion. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting how we've lined these episodes up because not only was it the last Civ Mill relationship podcast, the one before that, we talked about the importance of the relationship that needs to exist between the media and the military. And the fact that when you think about it, that's the importance of having everybody on the same sheet of music. And in fact, in my own book, that's something that I I said I was incredibly disappointed by. And I think, unfortunately, you know, this is not a partisan remark, but it happens to be confined for the time being to this administration. And that is just the fact that there are so many elements that appear to be not coordinated. You know, this is something, this is a moment in time where you could just imagine if both Esper and Millie had even discussed this prior to walking out to the podium, that that would have negated that type of a soundbite from even leaking out. So the fact that a lot of these events have that kind of ad hoc feel, and like you mentioned, anytime you change policy, anytime you're, you're changing direction for an organization that has 3 million men and women who are serving within it, you got to be aligned. You got to be on the same sheet of music as you do so. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the leadership challenge uh, through and through. Today's podcast is going to be fantastic. We managed to line up uh, retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath. I've known Amy for a number of years. The reason why I thought it would be great to get her on this podcast, especially in one of the early episodes, is because as I'm watching her run for a seat in the U.S. Senate from the state of Kentucky, she had a very successful campaign in 2018 where she became the Democratic primary nominee for a House seat and narrowly lost that seat. But in running that campaign, she demonstrated that she had fundraising prowess. She was able to garner a lot of support in the state that had been, in this case, traditionally strongly Republican. And so... Chuck Schumer had called her up as they approached the 2020 cycle and said, Amy, really impressed with what you pulled off in 2018 and would love to see you run against Mitch McConnell in 2020. We think you're the best chance for the Democrats in this case to be able to uh, potentially in, unseat a long-term incumbent. And so she's been often running in that race. She has done very well on the fundraising side of the House. I think she's got a lot of energy and engagement with her campaign. So it'd be great to have the chance to talk to her today. Uh, before we get her on the line, you know, just a little bit of a background on Amy. She grew up in Kentucky, uh, joined the U.S. Marine Corps, and she got there by going to the U.S. Naval Academy first. So she was actually the class in front of me. She was a 1997 graduate from the United States Naval Academy there in Annapolis, Maryland. She served for about 20 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, she started off as a backseater in the F-18, what they call a weapon systems officer. And then uh, as she got towards the tail end of her career, got an opportunity to uh, become a pilot in the front seat of the aircraft. And she's had tours in the Pentagon. Uh, she also closed out her tenure in the U.S. Marine Corps as an instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy, where she was able to take all of her experiences in uniform and now pay that back to the future generations who are going to be following in her footsteps. And I got to know her very well when we both served on the U.S. Naval Institute's editorial board for one of the magazines they call they put out called Proceedings Magazine, which is focused on issues of national security interest to the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. 
So looking forward to having, having Amy on. And Mark, I'm just curious, as we're talking to someone who's not only worn the cloth of our country, but also now engaged in political campaigning, uh, what do you hope to learn from Amy? Right. Well, there's a number of things, Guy. I mean, one, I'm just happy to see more and more uh, service members uh, get out, continue to want to serve their country in the uh, political realm there. It's uh, definitely a, a difficult transition, but be interested to hear what uh, Amy wants to focus on in terms of national security. Where is her mind at and what the uh, country needs to be spending $750 billion on? Uh, how will she go about you know, funding her own campaign? Uh, as we all know, the military uh, doesn't, you know, have a lot of uh, money left over when you get down there. So where is that money going to come from to move forward towards November? Uh, she's a very enthusiastic and uh, exciting candidate, so I'm looking forward to hear, hearing how she talks us through her strategy going forward. Yeah, and I think that's a big reason to have her on. Is I remember reading a white paper that a friend of mine who had served with me in Japan when I was a department head put together, and his whole point was about how you successfully transition out of uniform and into the civilian sector, no matter what you pursue or what you want to do. Yeah, and his quote from there was that basically the merry-go-round stops for everybody at one point or another. It's either by your choice or by the military's choice or maybe you age out. But regardless, for everybody, you will transition out of uniform at some point or another. So, you know, you got to think about it and and have plans in place. And I know having talked with Amy previously, uh, I had a chance to to catch up with her over the weekend. So not only did she have a plan in place when she wanted to become engaged in politics in Kentucky as someone who's very passionate about taking care of of the men and women who live in Kentucky. But uh, to your point about fundraising, that'll be an interesting point of the conversation because of the fact that uh, one thing she did mention to me last weekend was uh, she had been advised, never put your own money in the pot because uh, it's a very easy way to lose your shirt. You want to be able to build that kind of excitement and enthusiasm around your campaign that brings uh, men and women who want to see you in office to the uh, you know, to the team. So All right, let's think about that for a minute. I mean, fundraising as a whole is hard enough without having to you know mess with a coronavirus. Now she's going to have to do a lot of it through social uh, distancing and uh, you know distance learning with a uh, fundraising over the web. That that in itself is going to be a huge uh, challenge. I'm be interested to hear how she uh, plans to work through that. Yeah, and I'm I'm very interested to to have a conversation with her, largely because I know one of the biggest changes that I had to make when I transitioned, and it took. A, a little over a year for me, was this, it's more difficult than a lot of us who served in uniform, especially for a long time, realize, and that's the willingness and, and ability to talk about yourself. And I think for those of us in uniform, you're, you're used to coming up, and especially if you've had an opportunity to be kind of an elite warrior, right? Um, what you want to do is, you, if you're a Navy SEAL, if you're a Top Gun pilot, if you're, if you're anything like that, you don't go into your unit and say, hey, everybody, I'm the best because I've done X, Y, and Z. Uh, typically, you want your actions to speak louder than your words ever can. And, and when people watch you, then they realize, OK, you've got the goods and, and you're really good at what you do. So it's almost to your to your credit. You want to be as understated as possible because that just continues to even propel you uh, further forward. People people look to you as a genuine leader. And it's interesting. I think it's going to be fascinating to hear from Amy. Not only does she have to kind of fight that, but I mean, when you now step out and you want to be in politics, you've got to ask for money, like you just mentioned. And you also want to uh, talk about yourself and be compelling. You know, was it easy for her to make that transition or was it pretty tough? Yep. This is going to be an exciting episode, Guy. Let's get started. All right. So here we go with conversation with retired Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath. Amy, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, you know, you've popped on my radar a number of times over the last couple of years. As I mentioned in the introduction, you and I had a chance to work together when you were still an active duty Marine Corps officer as a lieutenant colonel at the U.S. Naval Academy, and uh, I was still a Navy commander. And I watched with a lot of interest as you 
not only uh, retired from the Marine Corps, but you proceeded to return to Kentucky. And then, of course, you obviously you felt that call to continue your public service because you ran for a congressional seat there, and now you're running for a U.S. Senate seat as you're running against current Senator Mitch McConnell. So I'm curious, if you don't mind, just, uh, you know, we've got a very diverse audience, if you would, maybe give us a little bit of uh, your thought process, what, what drove you once you had retired from the Marine Corps to want to pursue a continuation of public service as an elected official? Well, I mean, I think like many Americans more recently over the last uh, decade or so have sort of looked at it. I know I looked at my husband who was also a, a Navy pilot for 20 years and you know, how many times in, in your family and in your life have you said, gosh, I wish we had better leaders in this country. Um, and I really feel like a lot of the, the things that we learned in the military in terms of leadership traits and that sort of thing were not um, being exemplified by our political leadership. And I really felt like um, it's hurting us. It's hurting us as a country. Um, and then I also, Guy, I looked back at, uh, well, what was the mission of the Naval Academy back 25 years when we went there? I mean, we went there and we were trained to be um, leaders in the Navy and the Marine Corps, but the mission was for to train us to assume the highest responsibilities of command, citizenship, and government. I mean, that's right there in the in the statement, in the, in the um, mission statement. And I really took that to heart. And I felt like, gosh, you know, we need better leaders in government, and uh, that means better public officials. And the only way, and me being a person of action, just like many military uh, members are, you you go get things done. And for me, that was, hey, I'm going to go home, um, back to where my family is, um, and I'm going to run for office, and I'm going to be the leader that I always wanted to have. You know, you referenced the, the U.S. Naval Academy mission statement. And of course, for those who are listening, uh, both Amy and I were graduates of the U.S. Naval Academy. And as you referenced, you know, that's, that's part of what it talks about is, is imbuing the students, the midshipmen as they're called, with the highest ideals of duty, honor, and loyalty in order to graduate leaders who are dedicated to a career of naval service and have potential for future development and mind and character to assume the highest levels of government, whether that's civic or community leadership. So I think that's a great reminder that uh, there are a lot of institutions out there like the U.S. Naval Academy, other service academies, other civilian institutions that care deeply about developing leaders of character who can not only serve uh, in the near term, but serve long term as well. So you've been at this a couple of years now since you retired. What, what would you say your biggest challenge or challenges have been going from the military into the uh, civilian sector and uh, jumping right into the pol politics there? Well, I think, uh, you know, those of us that have served in the military, it's, we're very straightforward uh, people. We're, we're folks that want to get things done. And I think when you jump into politics, um, you have to get elected to get things done. And that, you know, running a campaign, um, unfortunately, today's day and age in America requires a lot of money. And I think those of us that look, I mean, I, I, I remember being told um, when I was still lieutenant colonel and I was thinking about retiring and, and gosh, I really want to get into public service. I really want to run for office and, and be that leader. Um, I was told, you know, Amy, you don't have enough rich friends. Um, you, you, you aren't connected. You know, you, you have a lot of military friends. You have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people there, but they, they just aren't going to fund your campaign and you need to, you know, increasingly politics is for the well-connected and the wealthy. 
And it's very, very sad. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges um, starting out was um, how do you, you get there? How do you get your message out? How do you um, raise the resources you need to compete? So let me, there's a follow-up on that real quick. I'm, I'm dying to know because you bring up something that I found was a personal challenge. When I first retired, when I stepped out, in my case, I'd actually was working on and had published a book and I was incredibly hesitant to do what I would have thought during 20 years of service was I always considered to be self-promotion, um, advertising yourself, talking about what you're excited about or what you're doing. So was that a difficult transition for you to not only become comfortable in your own skin, advocating for things you find important, but just like you mentioned, basically going hat in hand to various groups and individuals and saying, not only am I passionate, but I'd like you to help fund this, this yeah, movement. It was extremely difficult. And, and it's extremely difficult to ask people to help you in that process. Because here, here you are as a military officer, you know, you've never had to ask people for money, for example, you never had to sell yourself a certain way, you know, you, you, uh, you have that rank and you and people respect that that you, you they already know just based on what you wear on your chest right what your experience level is what your competence level is that's not the case in politics right you you take the uniform off you don't have that um and so you have to explain not only yourself to people but your vision your values uh you know i believe that so many americans and so many voters people here in kentucky what do they re they really want they want a leader who they can trust to put them above their political party, to put them above special interests, to do what's right for the country and for Kentucky. Um, and at the end of the day, they, I believe what they're really hungry for are leaders of character who, have, who are honest and have integrity. And they don't see that in politicians today. They certainly don't see it in Senator McConnell. And, and I feel like you know, that's the challenge is how do, how do you um, explain, hey, I'm, I, I'm competent, I have this background, but really my values are rooted in things like, you know what, I think integrity matters. I think being honest with you matters. And uh, that's, that sometimes is a challenge because, you know, of all the other things you have to do, like raising money and that sort of thing. So one thing that stood out when I went to your campaign website, and for those of you listening, it's uh, amymcgrath.com. Highly recommend you go and take a look and not only learn more about who Amy is as an individual who's running for a, for a, a U.S. Senate seat in Kentucky, but also get an idea of how she stands on various issues. But I noticed a couple of things that stood out. One is that you've had this longtime focus on the importance of public health. You focused on national security, but you also tie them together. And I thought that was incredibly, not only you know, smart to do so, but it, it showed foresight because here we are, we're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. And so when you talk about advocating for public health, not only as a concern for citizens, but as a national security issue. I was just wondering, could maybe you, you peel the onion back a little bit on, on what, you, what concerns you the most about how public health impacts national security? Well, I mean, I think it's clear now that healthcare is a national security issue. Um, if you think about COVID and what, what we're all experiencing right now, I mean, more Americans at, are at risk of, of dying from this pandemic than almost in any other war since the Civil War, if you think about how, how many could potentially die. I mean, this is a real concern. And some people have uh, delayed seeking care 
for this virus because they couldn't afford it. In the early, if you think about it, in the early days of before the legislation was passed to provide even free testing, you could people might not want to get tested because even if they could find it because of affordability. And so, you know, I I feel like we you have to tie it all together. I mean, it's very clear that that um, other people's, not only our own healthcare is important to us, but the healthcare of other people affects us in ways that I think we've never maybe connected the dots before. Um, in addition, we have 12 million Americans right now, maybe more at risk of, of losing their employer-based health insurance. And, and so I think, you know, you, you've tied employment to health insurance, and then you have massive unemployment in an epidemic like this or a pandemic like this, which leaves people without healthcare. I mean, it's just, it's a, just a double, triple whammy uh, that's, that's happening in our country right now. So I definitely think we need leaders and to bring it back to the very beginning, we need leaders that, that don't look at everything through a political lens. And I think that's the biggest difference between myself and Senator McConnell, frankly, there's lots of other differences, right? There's political party, there's, there's gender, there's age. The biggest difference is I don't look at everything through a political lens. And I feel like if we had more leaders that looked at, at things like healthcare and looked at, um, you know, pandemic as a, the potential for pandemics, as an example, as a national security concern, we would have probably taken this a lot serious, more seriously at the beginning. Wow, that's, you're hitting out of the park there, Amy. One thing I'm picking up right away with your voice is just the passion of your uh, conveyed it to our listeners here. You can really sense uh, you're really committed to what you want to move forward in here. I'm also on your website right now, and I notice you've got anti-corruption, anti-obstruction, anti-BS. Is there any one of those that really stands out more that you're working on right now to uh, to make a campaign on? Well, all three of them are important. Uh, I would say that, you know, when you think about the danger of of more years of, of Senator McConnell being in power, for example. I think one of the biggest dangers is to our democracy in itself, because we have an entire generation now of Americans who's never seen a functioning federal government. They've never seen, they, they've just seen leaders obstruct, uh, rip up our constitution when, it, when it's you know, necessary for them politically to do, uh, the constant bowing down to special interests a government that works for the well-connected and the wealthy only. And I feel like it's just over and over and over again, there are more examples of that. Um, and so in my campaign, I, I, I really focus on, on being somebody that can cut through some of that. You know, and, and let, let me give you a quick example. We're talking about COVID um, because that's happening all around us, right? And we're all affected by it. The first piece of legislation, phase one of this, uh, that was was passed. Uh, Senator McConnell held it up for two days, wouldn't pass it, so that he could make sure that big pharma would be able to gouge prices on a potential vaccine, maybe a six months or a year from now. Think about that. When every day mattered to pass the first piece of emergency legislation, and 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 again, it's just a theme. Of what do you, what really matters to you as a leader? The, it matters. The special interests mattered more <laughs> than getting, you know, the, the legislation passed that was really needed by Kentuckians and Americans right away. And I just feel like so many people are tired of that. 
Well, something that also stood out not only in our previous conversations, Amy, but also once again on your website is just the fact that uh, you do put uh, your words into action. I love the fact that you've had this call for, um, you know, putting the country first, put country over party. And I think that that's something that I suspect that all three of us, Mark having served as a active duty member of the U.S. Army for decades, uh, that is kind of inherent, which is a little bit unique in that we have spent some portion of our lives being relatively uh, nonpartisan because it was always about what's in the best interests of your service, the best interests of your unit, the best interests of America. You stay far away from the political fray. So again, it's fascinating to hear you as, as, you've, as you've shed the uniform, having served as a frontline Marine Corps officer, and now you're running for a political position. The second thing that stood out to me in what we've been talking about so far is one thing you said, and I agree wholeheartedly, I've actually written about this, the fact that uh, leadership in a time of crisis is critical, but the one thing that I believe that we've seen play out since COVID-19 started is that you can't surge trust. You can't, you can't lose trust for, of your constituents and then suddenly in the moment of crisis say, hey, all those other crazy things that occurred, don't worry about that. Now I'm an incredibly trustworthy leader driving forward. So I think a lot of what you're touching on uh, certainly resonates with Mark and I, but it also would resonate with a lot of our listeners. I am curious though, you know, you've referenced a couple times about your concerns with Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell winning his seat again. And of course, as everyone knows, when you win a U.S. Senate seat, that's a six-year term. That's another six years in that seat. So I guess, can you compare and contrast for us? You know, what would a McGrath six years look like that's different than a McConnell six years? Well, I think I touched on a little bit of that already. I think, um, but I'll, I'm going to expand a little bit further. I really do believe one of the problems with our democracy right now, when we have, when you talk about the leadership of Mitch McConnell, is that there's this, this cynicism and dif disbelief among Americans that we can actually solve problems anymore, that government can actually come in, that we the people can come together and solve problems. And so when I, th and I think about, you know, what the danger is of another six years of Mitch McConnell is this, he has literally stopped our democratic process. Um, th think about the fact that it took a national emergency of epic proportions for him to do his job, to bring a bipartisan bill to the Senate floor, okay? Uh, he has 400 bills sitting on his desk, many of which are bipartisan bills passed in the House that he just didn't wanna, he just don't wanna do anything with. And mm -hmm. What's the, and you might say, well, what's the problem with that? You know, why is that bad? Well, the problem with that is you're not allowing the normal discourse of our democracy to take place. And what that does is it inflames both sides of the aisle. People start wanting the president to do it all. Um, they start, it, he's basically shut down uh, the normal process of our democracy and shut down our ability to solve problems. And so, you know, when you think about, well, what would Amy McGrath bring? First of all, I'm, I'm somebody that, that is a problem solver, okay? Um, and then maybe it's my military background, but I run to the tough battles. I don't shy away from them. I go after the challenges and I, and I make a difference and try to solve those problems. And we have a lot of them in this country. We have a lot in Kentucky. We have the highest cancer rates in the country in Kentucky. We have some of the highest rates of diabetes. We have an opioid drug problem that's ravaging our state, and we've had entire regions of our commonwealth that have been economically left behind 
not only in the past few years, for the past few decades. And Mitch McConnell just isn't serious about any fixing any of those things. Um, he's proven it over and over again. So what would look different with me is I would actually tackle those things. I'm talking about getting prescription drug prices down. We have the second highest per capita spending in the country on prescription medication in Kentucky. I'm talking about healthcare, um, making it more affordable for people. You know, um, I'm talking about good quality jobs. I was just talking to a gentleman in Nelson County yesterday about um, high-speed internet and how important that is. I think we should we should have high-speed internet, and that should be we should look at that as a public good the same way Eisenhower looked at roads and bridges in the 1950s and 60s when he you know built the interstate highway system. So. You know, I feel like we need we need somebody with a vision that really cares about Kentucky and will focus on Kentucky. Well, one thing you said that certainly resonates is this aspect of just simply doing your job. I wrote a Washington Post op-ed back in the summer of last year where I said that, you know, our conflicts and our adversarial relationship with North Korea and Iran weren't our biggest national security problems facing the United States. It was the fact that you had so many gapped positions within uh, for political appointees, right? And those come through the Senate Armed Service Committee and then should go to the, the floor of the Senate for the Senate to have a full vote on. And, and you've got so many gapped positions, you have so many acting individuals in those roles right now that it's an easy rationale to see why there's a lot of dysfunction is you simply don't even have the government staffed properly. You don't. And you have a guy like Mitch McConnell who just doesn't want to do his job. He just doesn't want to put any of these bills to the floor. I mean, Guy, you might think that uh, we should keep the minimum wage at 725. And, um, you know, your wife might think that it should be $10. And I might think it should be something else. Here's the thing. We all have disagreements. But when you shut down the mechanism for hashing out those disagreements, you know, nothing gets done. And people lose faith in their government and trust in their government. And I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a big deal for our democracy. You know, just do your job. No, that's a great point, Amy. Do your job. So here it is, 15 April, normally tax day, but yeah, that's been extended. So between now and November, uh, can you talk us through your game plan on uh, campaigning and, and, and how you see moving forward, uh, moving up to the election here? I mean, this, this, this uh, campaigning by a distance learner has got to be a challenge. Well, it is a challenge. Um, I think what I'm really proud of is that we have, this campaign has adapted uh, very quickly to um, what's happening all around us. And, you know, my staff is, is, is incredible. When this uh, COVID-19 um, crisis happened, we, we did what most um, Kentuckians would do, is we looked at each other and said, how do we help our fellow Kentuckian right now? Politics is important, the campaign's important, but the most important thing is keeping ourselves, our families, and our communities and our fellow Kentuckians safe. So, and how do we help? So we restructured our campaign uh, to do that. And uh, the program that we started is called the Commonwealth Common Health Program, where we basically took my volunteer network and my field operation, which was pretty robust um, at the time. And we uh, changed it to, to do this program where we take able-bodied Kentuckians around the state and they volunteer to help those people who might need help. Um, I'm talking about folks who are shut in, uh, mostly elderly who don't wanna leave the house, who may need to get their prescription drugs or um, might need um, distilled water for their respiratory machine. Uh, we've had 
uh, people sign up, hundreds of people sign up to help other people in their community. And then other people who need help sign up through my website at amymcgrath.com to, um, to get assistance. And I just thought that was, um, my team came up with that idea. And when I said, let's go with it, because that is, that is exactly what we need to do right now. And the other piece of that, the second piece of that is a, a food bank initiative that we started um, raising money. We've raised over $37,000 for food banks around Kentucky, uh, which is so important right now because I'll tell you what, the food banks are hurting. They're hurting. They've got the double whammy where most of their volunteers are elderly, so they don't, they're losing their volunteers. They also get a lot of their supplies normally through um, grocery stores. The, the sort of leftovers in grocery stores. And anybody that's been to a grocery store lately knows there's not a whole lot of leftovers. And so, you know, they're really hurting. And so we're, we're trying to help them out. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. And that's, that's what leadership is. I mean, it's not everything is about um, politics all the time. At the mm. same time, um, you better believe that I'm going to be holding Senator McConnell accountable for his continued failures uh, for the people of Kentucky and, and, you know, in, throughout his 35 years, but particularly during this crisis. Well, one, thanks to you and your team. It's great that you take a leadership position on uh, food banks as one small example of all the things you're doing there. You know, that, that immediately makes me think about, of course, the men and women, the families who are being impacted by coronavirus. But as a national security foreign policy podcast, one thing that I want to do is kind of draw that back up to that more strategic level, because of course, in local communities, like you mentioned with food banks, making sure that families have what they need, but that also has these very large lines that extend through the economy. And as Secretary Mattis and those of us on his team would regularly campaign with more senior individuals in the Trump administration, like in the White House, you know, the economy is your engine for national security. So it's interesting because we got the three of us on this call, all three of us have been involved in direct combat actions, in some cases, multiple tours. So I'm just wondering, as you think about the state of the economy, the impact that that will undoubtedly have on our nation's budget, because we're running huge deficits, et cetera, right now, and that's going to continue for some time as we look to right this ship, what impact do you think that that's going to have on national security? Because we've always, as all three of us have seen, you've got to balance current operations and readiness with preparing your forces for the future fight. So I guess what I'm really asking you is, you know, if, if we have a Senator McGrath, you know, mm -hmm. what will your position be? What's your thought on how should the military be positioning themselves for the next three to five years? Do you agree with, uh, in general, beginning to start to pull some forces back from all these overseas operations we have so that we can reconstitute and mm -hmm. stride and continue to rebuild the force? Do you, what do you see about our global engagement? Well, I'm somebody that believes that um, that we can't pull back from the world, okay? We're not going to go back to, to you know, 1950 and 1960. We live in a globalized world. And one of the things that I'm, I'm disappointed with our leadership uh, in, our, in our country right now is that they're not recognizing that. They're sort of turning the other way. Look, the global pandemics, climate change, um, these things do not stop at the border. You're not going to um, uh, be able to, to you know, build something around us, that uh, a moat or something that is, is going to keep these things out. We live in this globalized world and we are not going back. That is the world we live in in the 21st century and we have got to get leaders that understand that. I think... Uh, we have to have leaders that, under, that redefine, you know, what, what does national security mean? 
You know, we have we have a seven hundred fifty billion dollar military budget, and you know, planes, ships, and that those sorts of things are very important for our our national security. But they're not doing anything for us in this pandemic, are they? You know, and so I think we have to 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 think about what does national security mean. And if you're talking, what I think of national security as, you know, keeping Americans safe. And that means keeping them safe uh, economically. It means keeping them safe in terms of healthcare and, and their health so that they're not dying. Um, and that's why I think we need leaders that aren't going to continually gut the Center for Disease Control as, as a, an example. You know, and I and I, I do bring it back to Senator McConnell because he, he has such a bad record on these things. I mean, when when he tried to 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 repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, you know, he he literally put in an amendment to gut the very program that would be designed to detect and respond to outbreaks in our country. I mean, thank God. Uh, he, he lost that battle. <laughs> you know, imagine if he would have gotten his way. Uh, that we need leaders that understand that that national security uh, of the future in the 21st century is going to mean that we're going to have to think differently about it, and not um, you know not necessarily think the same way we thought 30, 40 years ago. So I, I would like to have that debate uh, in the Senate about what our force structure should be. Um, but I do believe that uh, we, we can't keep looking the other way. I mean, uh, we have leaders in this country that know uh, that climate change is absolutely a national security issue as well. So, you know, we got to look at all those things. Well, I mean, I certainly would agree with you on the importance of having that conversation within the confines of Congress. I know there was a lot of concern back in 2017, 2018. I was on a lot of the phone calls that then Secretary of Defense James Mattis was having with members of Congress to garner their support to uh, increase the Department of Defense budget in excess of what sequestration levels would permit because of the importance of rebuilding the military. Uh, but you're right, I mean, especially in times of these huge budget deficits, uh, giant and growing national debt, it'll be an important conversation to have to not only determine what military force structure should look like, but also to determine uh, how do you balance the domestic priorities with our requirement for international engagement, because I, like you, and I suspect Mark feels the same way, having had conversations with Mark previously, that there's there's a lot of importance of being globally engaged, because reality has shown time after time, we can look to retrench or go American first, or America first, but that that doesn't mean that other nations aren't going to want to push the buttons, or that, uh, of course, terrorism, the, the constant fight that's always ongoing, uh, doesn't, you know, just because you want to check out of the global community doesn't mean that others don't want to draw you back in. And so having at least some force structure overseas is, is important. Right. And I would agree with you. And I also think we need to look at um, what what kind of bang do we get for our buck here? I mean, when you talk about, um, like, for example, in the recent crisis, you know, these, these cuts to the Center for Disease Control and the National Institute of Health over the last few decades, I mean, Gosh, if, if had we just had some people that that understood um, what national security is in the 21st century, no one would have ever cut those those budgets the the way they were. The national stockpiles, you know, we would have we would have had the stuff that we needed for this uh, pandemic. But I mean, as as far as our military, I I'm somebody that really believes. I go back to the Constitution of the United States, right? And Article One says that Congress is the 
body of our government that is supposed to authorize, you know, declare war, authorize the use of military force around the globe. And I feel like we have dropped that over the last uh, 15 years or so. And we have basically a Congress that is afraid to step up and do its job and has ceded that power to the president. And I find that um, very disturbing because I feel like if there's, you know, if we're going to put men and women in harm's way overseas, um, Congress at least ought to have, at least ought to have the, um, the guts to stand up and vote whether we should be in some of these places. I think before we talk budgets, we got to talk uh, what are the threats and whether we should be, um, how we should be fighting those threats. And I think that's something that Congress should do. Yeah, we couldn't agree more, Amy. You're talking right up guys and minds, Allie. Uh, you really get me excited with the force planning, force structure. That's kind of my wheelhouse as well. I'd be uh, really interested to hear what you would, you know, do in, once you got up there in the Senate and uh, said we need to focus on X, Y, or Z. Uh, in fact, for my last question, I'll, I'll just ask you, you, you've talked a lot about health issues or the economy. Is there one big national security issue you, know, you would like to see uh, the Senate focus on that we have not that uh, would really resonate with, uh, with yourself? Well, you know, when I, um, I spent the latter half of my um, military career looking at the threats that would most damage our country. And um, I did this at the National Defense University at um, the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction. And I did this while I was at the Pentagon. Um, the things that I came away with those years uh, of studying and doing exercises, some people call them war games, that sort of thing, are um, very sobering. And the, the, the threats that I felt that were the ones that we were sort of least prepared for um, that could most damage our country were uh, a non-state actor having and using a nuclear device, uh, which I think is a possibility that we're the the idea that we have to continue to track down um, uh, and understand what nuclear material is and make sure that people don't get certain people um, and non-state actors don't get their hands on it that could harm us. Uh, I think the other thing that I noticed was um, this idea of a biological pandemic. It was literally something we uh, focused on and talked about and did exercises on, and it, it very much opened my eyes to the fact that we were not ready. And, um, and that I mean, we're seeing that play out right now. Um, mm -hmm. I think part of what I learned in that is that being able to mitigate something like this, the people have to have trust in government. And I'm very concerned about that going forward because I feel like, um, there's a, there's a mistrust of government. I feel like there's, in many cases, there's been a lot of different uh, messages coming from our government. It's, um, it's been, been very disturbing to see. And I think that we're, we're unfortunately gonna be seeing the consequences of that. So um, going forward, I'm somebody that I wanna make sure that I use my background in national security and all the things that I have done to focus on those things that are going to be most threatening uh, to our country. and. Um, and certainly what we're seeing now is a uh, good example of one. Yeah, both of those will keep us up at night, that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, you know, as we're starting to wind down, any, you mentioned some of the concerns that you've had. You mentioned non-state actors. You mentioned a pandemic like we're seeing play out now. Um, 
as far as state actors go, are yeah. there any nations like the sure. top one, two or three that kind of stand out to you that would keep well, you up at I, night? I mean, I think it's, it's um, the same ones we've always been, been um, talking about. I'm, I'm very concerned about North Korea. I think everybody's concerned that they could get um, the capability of, of having a, a ballistic missile capability with a nuclear warhead. They said they wanted to, to do that. They said that's a goal. I think that's a, a big, big concern. I think we have to, to balance the rise of China um, and uh, with our economic interests and, and making sure that that relationship doesn't um, sour. Uh, we, need, we need to have a good relationship with China. I think uh, we also need to look at um, the kind of power that they have in that region and make sure that, um, uh, that, that we're balancing that power. Um, and I'm also very concerned about Iran, you know, I mean, I think uh, Iran developing a nuclear weapon uh, could completely destabilize the Middle East. Uh, I think Iran is already the single greatest um, destabilization uh, factor in the Middle East right now. So um, that's very much a concern. Uh, the, you know, all of these actors deal with us in um, ways that are not necessarily going, you know, tank to tank, as you all know, they do this sort of hybrid warfare, cyber warfare, uh, and, and they're doing it on a constant basis. Russia is another example of a, of a nation that is uh, not our friend. And, uh, you know, we have to, to make sure that we're always on guard because they are um, trying to go after our democracy and, and continue to try to do that. So these are all things I'm going to be uh, focused on. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thanks for playing along, because I think you touched on every nation state and the non-state actor that uh, are highlighted in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. So well done. You passed on all <laughs> passed the flying colors there. The, the thing that I find interesting is that throughout the ages, people have come up with these fancy new terms, you know, whether it's hybrid warfare or, you know, gray zone conflict. Gray zone, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's all these different things. It's like the, the term of the, or the flavor of the week. And what I find interesting is, is people seem to be surprised that nations that would seek to challenge us would, would rely on a tactic other than tank on tank or plane on plane. I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm always surprised that they advocate that type of a solution because if you are perceived to be, or in actuality, the weaker power, and Iran's a great example of this, uh, with just like you mentioned, they, they have a tendency to foment unrest in the Middle East. They look to destabilize the region to draw us deeper in. There's a lot of nefarious actions that the Iranian regime has carried out over the decades, but they're never going to want to go toe-to-toe with the United States because the reality is a large conflict for Iran could be, you know, could result in regime change, whereas for us, a large conflict with Iran is just simply one other operation that we need to be involved in. It's not an existential crisis in most cases for the United States. So I think you brought up a great point there about the fact that it's important for practitioners to realize that uh, most nations are going to seek to follow, you know, like Sun Tzu's maxims that you want to go where your enemy is weak and maximize your own strengths. So you, you bring up a great point. Well, uh, I want to be I, mindful of just say, I know, and I, I know we focus on the, the state actors and, and I, that's really important, but I also think, you know, the crisis that we're in right now shows us that, that sometimes maybe we haven't kept our eye on the ball here. Um, I mean, when you think about what the, the things that could actually change our way of life in this country and hurt and, and kill Americans and, and shut down our economy, you know, if you had thought about those things like a pandemic, 
um, as I have when when I when I did my time, you know, at at, at NDU at the National Defense University studying these things, uh, you would never, ever have cut the budget for the um, infectious disease and pandemic uh, agencies that we have in our government. <laughs> you just wouldn't. You would never cut the budget for USAID's um, forward-thinking program that goes out to other countries and tracks uh, biological pathogens, which is, you know, something that it's, it's like, Guy, we always talk about uh, fighting the enemy and the enemy's turf and not letting them come here to this country, you know, but yet we have politicians that want to cut these, these very programs because they, they think of it as, you know, foreign aid or something like that. These are the very programs that keep us safe. Because we think about the fact that had we we had somebody in China that could have tracked the, the biological pathogen months ago, and and studied it, we would be three months ahead of where we are at right now, and you know we didn't do that. In fact, we actually took our scientists out. You know, so these are the things that that we gotta we gotta think about uh, national security differently. Right. I don't, I don't want to jump into too partisan of a conversation, mm -hmm. but I will say from a nonpartisan standpoint that I. I had actually written a recent op-ed in published in The Hill that was a full-throated advocacy for what uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has proposed, which is a which is a bipartisan commission to study the coronavirus outbreak, what we what we knew, when we knew it, how did we respond to it? Because to your point, uh, yeah, there's a lot of these state actors that could certainly cause uh, crises in in the future, but they tend to be in most cases isolated incidents, but a pandemic or something that has a very large impact on American society as a whole, those are things you have to to be constantly vigilant about and I think that I have no doubt i don't even think I have no doubt that as we peel back the onion as we take a look at the warnings the signal flares, the warnings that were sent up early on, and we're talking November December from the intelligence community and how uh, different actions were either taken or not action uh, taken uh, have led to a to a significantly increased threat to the American public that didn't necessarily need to be here. And this gets back to your point about having trust in your leadership and making sure that we're doing what's right for the American public. So I really appreciate that. But uh, it's been great having you on. Um, so you know, I had a chance to talk with retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath, who uh, retired just a few years ago, has returned to Kentucky, and is now running for the U.S. Senate seat against the current Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. So thanks, Amy, for being with us. Yes, thanks, Amy. Great. It was uh, great talking with you, Mark and, and Guy. You bet. Have a great day. All right. Bye now. All right, Mark. So uh, fascinating conversation with retired Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath, currently running for the U.S. Senate seat in Kentucky. As you think back on that conversation, you know, anything kind of jump out at you or anything that stands out that that uh, from her responses? I mean, just what a fantastic candidate, Guy. I mean, you were lucky to know her as a friend. I'm just meeting her for the first time now, but you could just tell her enthusiasm, her passion for uh, doing the job, uh, you know, what she mentioned there, being a problem solver. I mean, really, how many folks uh, we want to send to Washington that could be problem solvers? If we had you know, nothing but problem solvers up there, I think we'd be a lot further ahead as a nation. Yeah, I think the one thing that, you know, you mentioned the importance of having men and women who have served in uniform, even for a short period of time, who want to continue to pursue the ability to make positive change at that national level or even at the state and local level, getting engaged, getting involved in some form or fashion. And some people like Amy 
decide to pursue that by running for elected office. And if they make it, then of course, now they're off to the races. But when you take a candidate like Amy, the thing that I think is a very positive is, is her two decades of service in uniform. She served in combat zones. She's considered and thought about national level problems. So if she wins the election, if she finds herself in the U.S. Senate, not only will it be great for her committee assignments, and hopefully we'd find her on the Senate Armed Service Committee or National Security or Foreign Affairs related committees, but uh, also when she's there, it'll help with a lot of her decision making. Because it's interesting, you know, to get elected and to stay in office, all politics is local. You've got to be focused on your constituents and focused on their needs. But the job you perform in Washington, D.C. has a very strong national level purview as well as international purview as you deal with uh, leaders from around the world. So I think that'll give Amy a leg up with her background. Yeah, I'm excited to see her move forward there. I mean, she had a lot of uh, great ideas, high speed Internet for everybody, health care for all, uh, picking up jobs, hell, doing your own job better, you know, Let's also talk about the, the threats she was talking about here, the national security uh, standpoint there. Uh, two of the ones that I really uh, liked she was going after that you don't hear as much uh, that kind of take a backseat to the state actors was the, the non-state actors and using a nuclear device and also the biologic uh, pandemic uh, scenario. Both of those are scary, keep us both up at night there. And uh, I don't think we've talked enough about those in, in the news. And look what we're dealing with right now, a, a pandemic, a global pandemic. And I think we need to relook some of our priorities as far as our national security and defense goes. Yeah, well, I think we have talked about pandemics plenty in the news. The thing that strikes me, you know, I've always kind of self-described as a guy, if you're standing at the railroad tracks and you want to cross, you know, and the whole crowd's looking right, I like to be the guy looking left because, you know, that's that's where the car, that's where the traffic, that's where the train's going to come out of nowhere and kind of hit you. And that's probably what concerns me the most is that we're all – so absorbed in the day-to-day of coronavirus, what does, what one, what are we missing from a national security, foreign affairs standpoint about, there's a lot of things still continuing to move around the world. We're just not focused on them and we're not thinking about them. And we're, we seem to be focused on kind of the, the day-to-day of what's happening with coronavirus and we're losing the opportunity to capture a lot of these really big lessons learned. So I think that's something that we need to make sure we stay focused on is, is learning some very important lessons that are playing out in real time that can have long-lasting positive impact for the uh, way we run this country into the future. Oh, I agree. As we move forward, I uh, think we're going to relook how we're going to spend $750 billion a year on, on national defense there. Uh, Amy mentioned a lot about force structure, force planning, and uh, you know how do you size and shape the military, something that's near and dear to both of us there. Uh, again, you know, you know, how many tanks do you need? How many fighter jets do you need? How many aircraft carriers? You know, what is best to defend this country? I think Amy's got a great vision on, on how to move forward on that. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting voices in the space right now. Of course, there's uh, plenty in the think tank realm. You have uh, others who, like Jerry Hendricks, who is a retired Navy captain, who tends to be fairly active in sharing his thoughts about moving to a more easily mobilized, uh, larger force of smaller ships, for example. I know the Marine Corps with General Berger talking about completely retooling how they structure the U.S. Marine Corps so that they can be more agile, responsive, and relevant to that 21st century fight. So it feels like we're either in or rapidly approaching a time of potential fundamental change for the Department of Defense. But I think all of us who've been around this for any number of years can agree that that kind of change is going to be required because the path we've been on has been unsustainable, trying to procure smaller numbers of incredibly expensive and and very exquisite solutions to a global problem for 
preserving American national security, American influence around the globe is going to be, uh, like we've talked about before, like a, a death spiral for a pilot, right? So you you have a budget that's either steady or maybe slightly decreasing. That means you can afford fewer things, but you want that high-end capability. So now you, they're spread incredibly thin. So it means you burn them out faster, which means that you have to replace them faster, but you can't afford it. And so that's why we've watched over uh, the past few decades, as you've seen, the, the force grows smaller, smaller, and smaller. And, it, and now when you are employing the force, like we've seen over the last two decades in this war on terror, that you've burned out the aircraft, you've burned out the personnel at an incredibly high rate because there are fewer resources to go around. Oh, you're absolutely right. And things are not slowing down. So it's going to be uh, imperative that we get our priorities straight there. You know, one thing Amy mentioned, she uh, really big in putting country over party. We cannot agree more. That is uh, imperative to be a leader these days, especially up in Washington. Her anti-corruption campaign, her anti-obstruction campaign, the one I like most, her anti-BS campaign, they will uh, go a long ways in Washington. What does BS stand for? Right, the uh, bovine <laughs> scathology. <laughs> Always a gentleman. So I, I appreciate that you don't even want to curse on the podcast. That's great. Uh, the listeners will keep you in good stead. Um, well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Holding the Line Podcast. If you would, take a few minutes. Just go ahead, subscribe to the podcast. If you're on a platform like Apple or Google that's hosting it that allows you to uh, put a rating in, please go ahead and uh, give us a rating so we can continue to build the brand loyalty as we move forward. But thanks for joining us for another episode, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Mm-hmm.